I don't think that we can be broken. Everyone that I talk to is, they're here for the long haul. If you are a creative in the entertainment industry looking for inspiration and practical ideas about how to take the next steps in your career, you are in the right place. My name is Rebecca Doyle and I work in film and television in Los Angeles. I learned so much from the ups and downs of the talented, innovative people surrounding me and I want to share those insights with you. Join in every other week to hear the break-in stories of people who overcame challenges and found unconventional avenues to pursue their dream careers in an industry that has no set path. In today's special episode, we are going to be talking to more writers. As of recording this in late August 2023, the writers are still on strike. If you need more context about that, feel free to check out episode 11, where I talk to members on the picket lines with the WGA, or episode 12, where I talk to members on the picket lines from SAG, and I also dive into more context about the strikes overall. You can also check out episode four, where I talk to someone who weathered the last writer strike in 2008. But today we're talking to more writers about recent developments in the strike, delving into some aspects of the strike we didn't get to fully cover before and as always giving you the direct paths that these writers took to have the careers that they currently have and ones that are still very early just at the beginning of their success let's jump into these interviews First, I had the opportunity to speak with Noah Schechter, writer on NBC's The Blacklist outside Sony Picture Studios. I'm Noah Schechter, I'm a member of the WGA West. Could you tell me where you are and why you're here? Sure, I'm standing outside the motor gate uh, at Sony Pictures Studios. Uh, we've been, I've been one of the picket captains here since May 2nd when we went out on strike. So uh, we are here to demonstrate and to picket the site as part of the ongoing WGA uh, writer strike. What has your experience been so far and has it shifted over the last you know, few months, especially after hitting day 100? Um, you know, I'm, I'm union strong. Like I, uh, I've gotten to make a lot of close friends out here. I don't, uh, love doing things generally. I like to be at home, but being on the line has been really good. I think for weathering the strike and the work stoppage, it's hard to not have any money coming in. This sucks, but being out here with other writers, uh, makes it a lot easier. So I am, uh, Still feeling fresh, you know, I just got a new pair of shoes, so I'm good to keep walking. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the strike, both from people within the industry and outside of the industry? Um, you know, I think that inside the industry, I think what studio leadership does not understand is that the things that we are asking for are not cherry-picked issues that are negotiating committees, like, demanding because they demand it. Things we're asking for are about the average writer in this business, protecting the average writer, helping them get what they deserve. Um, so, I, you know, I think that's the biggest misconception is that we've got leadership that's out of touch. Our leadership is pressing our issues, the things that we care about, that we need. We, I'm saying, you know, you're kind of non-superstar writers, but writers who are here have been making a, a living doing this. Uh, these are the issues that we need in order to make this business sustainable. Uh, for us in the long run the for people not in the business i think what they should know because it's about to come for them is the fact that the companies have led uh led by netflix frankly but 
they've gone into a business model, the streaming business model. And like a lot of tech companies, they came in slashed prices at a time when money was cheap and they could borrow a ton of money and offer their product, the product that writers create and actors perform at, un, they undervalue it, right? Like you used to pay a hundred and what, $25 for cable. Now all of a sudden Netflix is saying you can get all that for $9.99. Well, that's what they said at first, but now it's 29, you know, $20 a month. So slowly now that money is getting more expensive, they've got to actually be profitable. They're starting to raise prices, but they're hoping to keep our wages low in order to make up for essentially a flawed business model, which they pursued to try to capture market share, to try to grow subscribers back when that was the only thing that mattered to Wall Street. The economic landscape has changed a little bit. Their business uh, practices never made sense, but now they really don't make sense. Uh, and writers are not going to, you know, cash them out of their mistake uh, with our work. How long have you been a member of the Guild and what was the project that got you that Guild card? So I became a member of the Writers Guild in 2017. Um, I was an assistant on a TV show called The Blacklist. Um, my boss read a script that I wrote and he really liked it. And I started, he invited me to start pitching him some ideas for the show. Um, on a 22 episode show, you know, you're desperate for ideas, right? So any good idea from someone who understands the show, you know, in, in the staff, even an assistant can be valuable. So he and I worked on that idea a little bit together and I got the chance to write it as a freelance episode. Um, it went really well. And uh, based on that freelance episode, I was admitted to the guild. And when you say you submitted this script to your boss that he liked, was that a script that was a spec episode of The Blacklist or was it for something else? Good question. So no, that was an original script that I'd written that, you know, whatever. It was a, it was a fun... It was a fun uh, idea for a show that I had, and I submitted it to a bunch of festivals, and it did well at some of those festivals, and I'd shown it to some of the other writers on the staff. And so I felt confident by that point. I was like, okay, maybe this doesn't suck. And I shared it with my boss, and apparently he felt the same way. Hey, this is really great insight for someone that wants to pursue a, a career in writing. So was this episode something that you had already had before you got your job at The Blacklist and was kind of a portfolio piece, or did you develop it while you were working as a writer's assistant? So I developed it while I was uh, an assistant on the show. I, um, I'd written one pilot before that, which was terrible. And, you know, I found myself working with, you know, other writers, uh, the other assistants on the staff all had gone to MFA programs. So I just kind of like for the first three months, I, I tried to learn as much as I could about writing from them, how to break a story, how to create compelling characters, how to write a good pilot. Um, and then I kind of threw all that at an idea that I was excited about, you know, felt unique to me. And I think those combination of things kind of maybe led to it being successful. So a common complaint that I hear from people early in the, in the industry is it's really difficult to balance writing with, you know, your assistant job and it can be very demanding. What was your strategy for making time to prioritize your craft? So first of all, my bosses were great. So the two showrunners of The Blacklist explicitly told me, if you are not doing something for us or for the show, you should be writing. <laughs> And I, that meant that I had a, you know, they would work late and I would be there. I don't really have anything to do because no one's calling, you know, pe people don't call all day and all night. So I would have, you know, three, four hours during a long work day to do my own writing. And so th that was, that was the best. I mean, it was, that was the best. Um, I was really fortunate that way. Aside from that, you know, when 
I was writing on the show and wanting to develop my own stuff. You know, there's no secret to it. You wake up early. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard, uh, but, and I'm still trying to develop this skill, but a showrunner friend of mine, she, she explained to me once, she's like, look, if you want to do this, you have to be able to juggle five things at once. She's talking about writing projects, right? She's like, you cannot be the kind of person who needs 45 minutes to get into the zone. You have to find a way to sit down and write a scene in 25 minutes between, you know, helping your kid with their homework and reading the, or, you know, reading the new draft that came in um, from your staff writer for episode 12. Like, you just have to be able to get in the zone quickly. So that's a practice thing. Uh, and then when I was really working hard, I would try to just wake up before everybody else and write early. That, that tends to work for me. Uh, so now I'd love to hear about kind of your journey to that first job. Was the blacklist assistant job your first job in a writer's room? And what was your journey there? Did you grow up in L.A.? Did you move here for the craft? How did you learn how to how to be a screenwriter? All of the above. So uh, this job was my first in the business. I moved to New York to take the job. A college friend of mine who I'd been writing with for a couple of years was the showrunner's assistant before me. Uh, I was working in biotech in New York. We were writing a movie together on Skype because Zoom didn't really exist yet. And uh, one day as we're sitting down to work, he tells me, um, hey, I got a job at a comedy room. You know, he, he went from being the showrunner's assistant on a drama to a writer's assistant on a comedy. And I congratulated him. Um, and he offered to put me up for the interview. And I think largely on the strength of his recommendation, uh, I wound up, you know, I, I interviewed, I got the job and I broke my lease on my New York apartment, broke up with my uh, my partner at the time and moved to LA and, uh, I kind of just dropped everything and was out here a week later. And so that was your first writer's room job. How did you learn the craft of screenwriting? Did you go to film school? I didn't. I went to a liberal arts college. I studied political science, uh, and theater, I guess. So I've been writing for a little while. Um, I learned a lot from my colleagues, uh, the other assistants who, you know, had gone to MFAs and I took all their worksheets and I looked over all that stuff. And then um, the thing that I did that I think really taught me how to write, I, I watched my favorite shows and I broke them. To, I would just write, I would kind of like try to reverse engineer an outline based on a, a finished episode, right? Which on the very, on the most basic level got me to think in terms of scenes, which is I think the most important thing to do. It, you start to see, oh, okay, they went back to this location five times, right? They set up the B story as the second scene in act one, you know, and, and you just start to piece together some of, the, um, some of the things that are going on under the surface in a way that I hadn't just as a casual viewer. But I was, I learned a ton just by sitting there with a notepad going through the episode, writing down everything and did that a couple times. And by then I felt like, okay, I've kind of got a feel for how different shows are structured. And what were those favorite shows that you were studying back then? I did that a lot with Breaking Bad. Uh, what else? That I watched probably The West Wing to do that. I was a huge fan of that when I was younger. Um, those are the two that come to mind. Oh, The Americans. The Americans was a big one. And then can you tell me about how you structured the relationship with your boss? Because clearly you felt comfortable enough to submit an episode of your own work to him. So you had to put in some time to build that relationship. What was that process like? Um, 
I don't know. He was always he's a he was a really good boss to me. Um, I I just tried to be good at my job. I tried to be friendly. You know, I would kind of kind of pitch ideas every once in a while if it seemed like you know it could be helpful. We would joke around. You know, I got to know him and his family a little bit, but not you know like. This, this is just kind of my style. I know, I know a lot of people get very close to their boss. That's never comfortable for me. Uh, I like to have some distance between me and, you know, people I work with. Um, so, you know, it was just a, a request, you know. Hey, I'd worked for him for a whole year. I'd picked up his dry cleaning, though he almost never asked me to do that. I'd helped out at his kid's birthday party. Um, he he was a good boss, and so you know I I had reason to believe that he believed in promoting from within already, and so I thought, all right, let me just ask him to read it. It's a fairly low ask, and if he doesn't want to, he just won't, you know. So it, it I just tr I just tried one day. All right, last two questions, really quickly. Um, what is your hope for the industry five years from now? Oh man, uh, I hope that uh, the streaming model gets monetized in a way that is helpful, that is uh, lucrative for writers and actors. And what is your message to the studios today? Uh, you got to deal with our negotiating committee members. I mean, they, they understand what we want and what we need. We are your partners in this business. Um, we want to get back to work. Uh, let's find a way to do that as quickly as possible. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Next, I spoke with Evan McGahey, writer on Stars' Outlander. My name is Evan McGahey, and I'm a member of the WGA. Can you tell me what you were up to today outside Sony Pictures? I was picketing with my other WGA members and members of SAG-AFTRA trying to get a fair deal for us in our negotiations with the AMPTP. I got a chance to speak with your coworker Noah, who you know from the blacklist today, who is also picketing with you. Could you tell me about your guys' working relationship and your experience on the blacklist? Yeah, we met when I was a writer's PA on the blacklist, and he, I believe, was a showrunner's assistant, and he hired me. So I was there for a couple of years when he got promoted to writer, and he's moved up to ranks there, and then I've moved on to a different show, but. Yeah, we worked together, learned how network TV dramas are made because well, The Blacklist was a very like traditional, old style show. And it just is such a different animal than most of the shows that are out there. So we both kind of started our careers on the type of show that really made being a writer a great profession. What do you think is the biggest misconception, both within the industry and outside of the industry, about the writer's strike? I mean, I think that one of the one of the biggest misconceptions about the writer's strike is it's about people who are very wealthy, who are just being greedy and wanting to get more money. Uh, but for me, you know, I am a low level writer. I just joined the guild a year ago. And in the way the industry is designed today, I only work about 20 to 30 weeks a year. So whatever I make in that time has to sustain me for the next year or sometimes even two. I know people who have been uh, looking for work even longer. And also in terms of like the compensation that we get, we're producing shows and movies that generate millions and more often than not, like a billion dollars for the companies. So while we're asking for more, the value that those products are creating for the studios are even greater than that. What a, so if someone is working those 30 weeks a year, what kind of investments in their career are writers making in those other 22 weeks? 
a lot of it is just working on our own material unpaid. So you want to have your own movie script. You want to have your own screenplay, especially at people who are at my level. You're basically working for free. It's like if you went to your job and then you went home and did a second job doing the exact same thing, but without anyone paying you just to help you move your career ahead. Uh, it's really something that's on my mind like all the time. You know, even when I get home from my day job, I'm like, all right, I worked on that show. Now I got to work on the one that I'm hoping to sell one day. I've been in the process of like developing a couple of shows and I've been working with, you know, producers, with other execs and everyone on the phone call or the Zoom call is getting paid except for me. And my idea is the way that everyone else is going to get paid. I mean, one of the things about just the way that TV shows are structured is it's not like I only want to work 20 or 30 weeks a year. Like I would love to work every week, but you know, a show is only on for eight, uh, for eight weeks or they only have eight to 10 episodes and then production shuts down. And so if I want to come back to that show for the next season, I either have to choose not to take a job or I have to take another job and then lose the chance to come back to that show that I spent so much time working on. So it's not really like an easy decision. Uh, a lot of times it's either try to find a new job and sacrifice all the hard work and all the connections you made on the previous one, or just hold out hope that they'll bring you back the next year. So I've heard a little bit from other writers about the different points that are up for negotiation with the AMPTP. Could you tell me how the members decided which points they were going to stand by in the negotiations? That was down to the negotiating committee, which is a group of writers who are experienced, who have a lot of time in the industry and they know how writers make a living. And specifically, they sent out a survey a few months before the contract negotiations even started. And they asked for stories of writers of how have you fared the past three years? What's something that you would want to see in a new contract? What would be really helpful? And out of the you know 11,500 members of the guild, they got 7,000 responses. And they used those responses to kind of generate their main points that they took into the AMPTP in um, April and May when they were negotiating the contract. So that's definitely a majority then of WGA members decided collectively this is something that you guys wanted. Well, they definitely had input. And then what happened after they established uh, what they wanted to ask for, the negotiating committee and the board, they went to the membership and they said, we would like to have a strike authorization vote, which means we're not going on strike right now. But if we don't get what we want from the contract negotiations, we have the membership's blessing to go on strike and call for one. And so that when that vote went out, it was a very high turnout that out of 11,000 members, there was over 90, it was 97% yes, but I don't know what percent voted of the guild. Does that make sense? So yeah, 90%, 97% of guild members who voted, voted yes, the guild should go on strike. 97.85% of writers voted in support of strike authorization, which meant if we think, if you, the negotiating committee doesn't think that you can make a deal, we give you our blessing to go on strike and call a strike. One of the goals of the show right now is to humanize the strike by putting some actual faces, names, and stories behind the people on the picket lines. Could you tell me a little bit about your journey into writing? 
Yeah, I actually was not a, you know, film or entertainment major like in college. I really loved the television show House, so I wanted to be a doctor. And so about like two years into trying to get like a biology degree and I was taking organic chemistry uh, and I did not do so great. And I realized that maybe what I loved about the television show House was that it was a television show, not that it was about doctors. So in college, I started to get in, I started to get connected to uh, a lot of different extracurricular TV shows that students were putting together on like a shoestring budget. I met a lot of interesting people, a lot of producers. Rebecca Doyle was one of them. I don't know. Have you heard of, is she a part of your team? <laughs> Perhaps. Yeah. So anyway, um, and then after college, I just really tried to immerse myself in writing and working these random PA jobs, working as uh, an assistant in a management company. And so I just really had to get most of my education about what it means to make a TV show like on the ground, so to speak, like as a writer's PA, getting lunches and like stocking the fridge or just taking notes in the back. And so I really worked as an assistant for about 10 years. And then I finally was able to get promoted to a writer. And then six months later, the strike started. So it is great timing in a way because I'm perfectly positioned to like benefit from a lot of the gains that, um, we're going to get once we finally get this deal sorted out between the guild and the companies. And it also is kind of rough because I finally gotten to where I wanted to be after 10 years, but now uh, we cannot work. What was the project that got you your guild card? I work on a TV show called Outlander on stars. So for season seven, when I was a writer's assistant, I got to split a freelance episode with one of the other great assistants on the show. And then for season eight, I was uh, promoted to full-time staff writer. And so between those two, I was able to get my guild card. What was that journey like going from an entry-level position in a writer's room to becoming a staff writer? What were kind of some of the steps? I think it was really great because I was able to work with the same team as I learned about the show on the assistant level. And then when I got promoted to writer, I was in a room with a bunch of people that I already knew and who already trusted me and who had been very like supportive of my career and my writing. And I know a lot of people who their first job wasn't like that. It was on a show where they didn't know anybody. Uh, and so they had the struggle of not only trying to get people to know who they were, but also contribute to the room. And for me, it was a lot more comfortable in that I knew everybody and I didn't have to prove myself. I didn't have any insecurity because I'm like, these are my friends. These are the people I've been working with for like four years. So I just got to focus on, let me just do the best job possible. So you are now a strike captain for the WGA. Can you explain to someone who might be unfamiliar what that means and what your day-to-day -day looks like? Basically, being a strike captain on the picket line means you go there a lot more often than everybody else, and you get to wear a cool badge and a cool hat. And if you're very lucky, you get to wear a reflective vest. <laughs> and so it's really just about being with people on the line, trying to keep spirits up, uh, making sure that everyone is safe and out of the street and just kind of showing up for your other guild members in your guild and just making sure that the companies know that we're going to be out here until they uh, reach a fair deal with the negotiators. What are some challenges on the picket lines? And in particular, there are some that affect the fact that, um, you know, today Noah was gracious enough to speak with me on the picket lines, but 
writers are are more hesitant because there has to be some sort of trust that what they say is going to be only taken within context. Um, what are some challenges that you're facing with the media, maybe with uh, outside perspectives, conversation among the writers, all of the above? I think one of the biggest issues right now is as of, you know, August 24th, 25th, the companies have released their counter proposal to the Gill's proposal directly to the press and they've distributed it out to, you know, the members and everything. So it just feels like they're trying to negotiate with the members as opposed to the negotiating committee who have been immersed in these, uh, these issues and they know what we as the guild needs. And so I think that one of the pitfalls of engaging with the press or talking about it is that you're taking that conversation that should be happening between our negotiators and the company negotiators to actually hammer out a deal and it's now between the company negotiators and their press and the members on the picket line. What are you hoping the landscape looks like five years from now? I'm hoping that five years from now, a writers will be able to make a sustainable living working on these shows. So on more old school broadcast shows, for instance, like the blacklist that I started as and as assistant, they went for 22 episodes a season and they would have a season once a year start in the fall end in the spring and they were very profitable both for the writers and the actors and also the companies that were producing them and the networks that were distributing them and in the age of streaming there's been a lot of cool creativity i think that we have a lot of shorter order episodes that are like 8 to 10 or 12 that have done some really cool things but on the distribution side, they're always seen as unprofitable. Like a lot of the streamers say that they've been losing money on all of these shows. So I think that in five years, I'd like to see either a resurgence of the old school broadcast 22 episode per season things, just because I also as a fan like them. And also because I think it would be more profitable for everybody or to find a way to make those shorter order shows more profitable as well. So obviously this has been a 10 year journey for you to get into the guild. If you were speaking to Evan five years ago, or maybe just after graduating college, you know, USC with a biology degree and minor in screenwriting, what would your advice be in using this time well during the strike besides going to the picket lines outside Sony, obviously. Wait, so if I was graduating into the picket line. Yes. Or if you were maybe five years, you know, behind. Yeah. Or now. I would say other than going to picket line, I would say now is a great time for a vacation and to focus on your writing. <laughs> just go to Barcelona, get like a small Airbnb and just write a couple things. Enjoy it. Because once you get back, there's going to be a lot of work to do. What is your message to the studios today? I mean, I want the studios and the negotiating committee to come to a fair deal to negotiate in good faith. At the end of the day, this is just a business deal. I feel like it doesn't have to be personal. Personal. It doesn't have to be contentious. It's just got to be a bunch of very smart people getting together in a room and just figuring out what's going to work for both parties. Because at the end of the day, not only do we have to work together with the companies, but we want to work with them to make TV because that's what we do. That's what we're passionate about. That's where our livelihoods are. And I think that the sooner we're all able to come to an agreement, I think the better everything's going to be. Is there anything that we did not get to discuss that you want to say? 
it's been really hot on the picket lines. Like I enjoy getting a little tan, but like my farmer's tan has been reprehensible. It's a real problem. I need to work on that. Well, I've heard, I don't think there's been any illegal tree trimming on the West side quite yet. So no, no, there has, there is some shade at the Sony lot, which is where I'm a captain mostly, but at the motor gate right on the street, just beating down, sun beating down on the pavement, very hot. But we do have a little mister. We have a little tent. So we're all set up. It's like a block party of one. Well, thank you so much uh, for speaking with me today, Evan. Thank you. And finally, I spoke with Becca Mann, a writer's assistant on the Amazon and Blumhouse show The Bondsman and former script coordinator on Apple TV's The Morning Show. Note that Becca is pre-WGA because her titles are in a different union, but a direct promotion for her into the writer's room would mean WGA membership. Becca Mann, IATSE, local 871. Can you tell me why you have been picketing? I've been picketing because writers deserve fair wages. And I'm currently a writer's assistant. Um, I'm making minimum wage, basically. And um, I, I'm doing this because I love writing. And I want to know that when I'm staffed in a writer's room that I'm going to be making enough money to pay for basically just a normal life in L.A. And what kind of shows have you been able to work on as a writer's assistant? So I've worked on um, The Bondsman on Blumhouse and Amazon. It's not out yet, but I'm really excited for it. And then I was script coordinator on The Morning Show. And then I was also showrunner's assistant on The Wilds. And then my first job out of college was writer's production assistant on Cruel Summer. Can you tell me how you landed that first job on Cruel Summer and how it led to these subsequent jobs? Yes. So I graduated from USC in 2021. And then um, I knew that like the way to get in my foot in the door was just for someone to take a chance on me. So I decided that I was going to send out as many cold emails as I could to showrunners and <laughs> just say, hey, heard you're looking for a writer's assistant. Here's my resume. Um, I probably sent out like 500 of those emails. And uh, <laughs> thankfully, a lot of them bounced back. Um, sometimes I got the wrong person. They'd be like, I don't think that I'm the John Smith that you're looking for. Um, <laughs> but eventually the showrunner of Cruel Summer reached back out to me and she was like, this is so weird and I love it. Great hustle. I'm not looking for a writer's assistant, but I'm looking for a writer's PA in a few weeks if you're interested. And I was like, absolutely. <laughs> so that was how I got that. And then from there, um, once you like have that first job um, as like as a support staff writer, then um, it's pretty easy. Well, not easy, but you have something on your resume to like help you get the next job. And you have people to vouch for you who worked with you on previous shows. And then did, how did you even hear about the opportunities, the listings for the subsequent position? So a lot of that was just like word of mouth. Like I just told everyone that I knew who worked in the industry that I was looking and they all like kept me in mind, which was awesome. Um, and then like a lot of the time, like random job postings, I would, I'd find them in like the awesome assistance groups, um, stuff like that. And I think that that job, like my next job came from one of my friends who worked at um, an agency. She sent me this job posting and she's like, if you're interested, there's a showrunner looking for an assistant. Um, so I applied to that and then ended up getting that job. Amazing. This is such an inspirational story for someone who might just have no connections or feel helpless. You know, you really put in the hustle and sent those 500 emails. How did you know what to say in your email? I didn't really know what to say. I was just kind of making things up and hoping that someone would be like, well, this is like bold. I'll, I'll take a chance on her. And then I like kind of took the things that made me unique because um, I was a professional swimmer um, for 10 years leading up to um, leading up to that first job. So I like put in a sentence about that and was like, I will work really hard. I worked really hard for 10 years and I was one of the best swimmers in the country because of it. And I think that that also really helped me too. So like, 
I would say that finding something that makes you unique and hireable and like putting that in the email, something that will make you stand out that isn't just about writing, that's also hugely beneficial. Yeah, I know you have a very esteemed um, career as a swimmer, and I know you're giving very few details right now because <laughs> you have so much humility. But could you tell someone, especially for people that are unfamiliar um, with the world of competitive athletics, what was your background in that? And what are some of your achievements? Feel free to brag. <laughs> I was on the USA Swimming National Team for 10 years. And then um, I was also the youngest person to final in four ev- four events at a single Olympic trials in 2012. And then... Um, I also was the only person to swim the Maui Nui Triple Channel Swim, which is this 40-mile stretch in Hawaii from Maui to Molokai to Lanai back to Maui. And you kind of mentioned that you highlighted you have certain traits that you got from your athletic career that will translate over into your writing career. When did you start noticing those traits while you were developing your craft? I think that it's something that I was either taught at a very early age or born with, probably taught at an early age from my family. Um, Although that's not to say that like anyone can't have them, Um, because I think that as long as you work really hard and you're willing to like put in time and energy and um, just like as long as you're willing to do what it takes to make it, then you will make it. What do you think is the biggest misconception about the writer's strike, both a misconception maybe within the industry in Hollywood and then outside for people that don't work at all in entertainment? I think that one of the biggest misconceptions is probably that we're not... We're, like everyone's just kind of taking a vacation and taking time off. Um, we're we're fighting for like people think that, oh, OK, like you're writers, you make way more than like the average person, which absolutely isn't true. Like you might be making more on a weekly basis, but you're only working for eight weeks out of the year a lot of the time. And when you're only working for like eight to ten weeks, when you're in one of these like mini rooms, you're you don't you aren't making enough to support you for the rest of the year. And um even like the the showrunners who are making who like have overall deals, sometimes they'll have an overall deal for like let's say $3 million to like work on one season of television. If that season of television takes five years to make, then all of a sudden they're making less than like a mid-level writer um, because the season is taking so long to make and the the uh, studios are just keeping them on for as long as they can to make them cheaper. And, you know, mini rooms are definitely a topic of negotiation. Um, multiple showrunners are asking for minimum a minimum number of staff in their writer's rooms. Can you tell me more about the issue of mini rooms and what the talk has been among Guild members? Yeah. So one of the issues like with both mini rooms and like the minimum staff size. So minimum staff size, a lot of the times like studios will only hire like two or three writers and that won't be like that'll only get two or three jobs to writers in the WGA. So if like we have a minimum of 10 writers, then all of a sudden like they're going to be way more jobs and way more people are going to be employed and making money. Um, and then as for mini rooms, so another issue that's going on is that like they'll have a normal staff size for like, let's say eight weeks. And then after that, like they'll just give it to the writers to punch up like the showrunner and like maybe the creator, if the showrunner and the creator are different, maybe keep on one more writer. Um, so then like they'll be on for a longer time and then like writers won't get the, set, the, the chance to go to set. And it just like leads to a lot of issues with a very short amount of time being employed. Let's talk about Bike the Strike. I Bike the Strike is the highlight of my week every week. It's the best thing ever. Um, for someone who's unfamiliar with Bike the Strike, could you tell me more about what it is? Yes. So Bike the Strike was formed by this man named Shem Bitterman and, um, and his friend Steve. And the two of them uh, were like, we should just like get a bunch of writers together and bike every single studio every Thursday. 
And it's been amazing because you like find a, a group of like like-minded writer athletes and we all like take off and then we visit every single studio. And when we visit, we like boost morale and <laughs> we like we kind of hype up the people and they, they like get excited to see us. And we're like, bike the strike, bike the strike. Um, and we like meet people on the street, too. And sometimes like they'll be like, we, we appreciate what you're doing. And like we'll wave our signs. And it's just like a way to basically like <laughs> just to show people what we're fighting for and like talk to people out on the streets. Um, it's been really awesome. Have you been attending other themed pickets beyond Bike the Strike? I love the themed picket. So I actually I look on like the WGA website every day. and I'm like, what kind of fun picket can I go to today? And my favorite other than Bike the Strike is picket line karaoke. And now that SAG has joined us, it has become a party. So it used to just be like writers singing, like you could sign up and like you could sing multiple songs and like people would just kind of like bop around as they like walked past. But now that SAG is there, you have background singers, you have dancers, you have like a whole production. And it just like makes the people who are like sweating out on the picket lines really happy. And it like, you know, we, we make some noise, hopefully disturb the studios a little bit with our fun. <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's really important to like keep the spirits up because we're out here for such a long time and like it's hot out and people are like worried about the strike. So anytime you can sing and dance as you're, you know, fighting for <laughs> as you're fighting for fair wages, I think I think it's awesome. What other changes have you noticed? So obviously, you know, SAG joined the strike in July and WGA has been on strike since early May. We passed day 100 of the strike earlier this month. We're currently filming this in August 2023. What other changes have you noticed maybe among public sentiment, WGA sentiment, um, you know, SAG joining in? What have the recent developments been? I think that the recent developments have mostly been the WGA is still really united. Like the studios are trying to divide us, but... I don't think that we can be broken. Everyone that I talk to is like, they're here for the long haul. Everyone is willing to strike until January if we have to. And older writers are like so excited to get new, like basically a new contract for younger people so younger people can grow up in a better world. I think that the general public doesn't realize that we are united. We are going to stick this through. People think that we're getting depressed as it's going on. And it's definitely, it's not happening. We're here. Yeah, I, you know, I was talking with some writers on the picket lines earlier today about how you can acknowledge that there is hardship being created by the strike, but that doesn't mean that the solution is for the writers to give up. What do you think about that sentiment? I totally agree with that because this is the card that we've been dealt right now. We, we're out here striking and we may as well make it fun while we're doing it because no matter what, we'll be grateful for this in a few years time. Yeah, it, it isn't the best situation right now, but... Every time it gets hard, I just think about myself five years from now, making more money, making enough money to buy a house when I'm 35, maybe. And I'm like, okay, I, I can I can karaoke out here for one more day. <laughs> yeah. What is what do you see for yourself career wise in five years? You know, you've spent a few years in the industry. You've done these very competitive entry level jobs in writers rooms. So what is your hope for your career in five years? And then also for the general landscape in five years. I mean, I definitely like want to be staffed by then. And I would love to also be a showrunner potentially of my own show, which is ambitious for five years from now. But I like to dream big. And um, I'd also love to like have some novels published because I also love novel writing. So that's for me personally. And then for the um, the landscape as a whole, I would love to see the entertainment industry be a little bit easier to break into and have more passionate people able to just get in because they're talented and not because 
they know someone or they're a Nepo baby or because they had to work super, super hard to get there. I'd like them to just be passionate and work hard, but not to the extent where they can't have a life and then be able to like get in because of their craft. So novel writing as one of your passions, have you been able to focus more on that during the strike? Absolutely. Um, I've actually finished the first draft of a novel that I started um, less than a year ago, and I'm so excited to uh, <laughs> for the second draft and then to hopefully like get it published. Um, yeah, I novel writing was my first love. It was my first form of storytelling that I knew and that I was exposed to. So I'm really grateful that I get to work on that while we're striking for in the television industry. What would your advice be to someone a couple of years behind you who is interested in achieving what you've achieved? I would say to just be really brave and really bold and go for what they want. And uh, also to be friendly. Like everyone loves like a friendly person, friendly, positive, work hard, be brave. And then you're going to get what you want if you do all those things. How, what would your advice be on handling rejection or sometimes maybe not even a response if you sent, you know, 500 emails before you landed that amazing first job? I think that I don't think of failure as failure. I think of rejection just as something that has to happen in order to get success. Um, it's just a stepping stone. Um, it's just like a little stepping stone on your way to your goal and on your way to your path. So um, I would say don't think of it as failure and just keep going. Are we going to see any scripts or novels about swimmers since you have such an illustrious swimming career? I would say yes. I absolutely. <laughs> That's all I have to say on that at the moment. I, I already have a swimming pilot written. So waiting till the strike is over with that. But yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And what is your message for the studios today? I would say we're, we're you're eventually going to cave. So it may as well be now. <laughs> Let's have it be now. Just give us what we want. <laughs> Is there anything that we have not gotten to discuss that you want to touch on? A lot of non-WGA and non-SAG people have been out on the picket lines and they're such a huge support and they've been so helpful in just making this strike so much more bearable. And um, so I'd like to give a shout out to them and also all of the uh, the strike captains who are out there like some days from nine to two. And at the beginning, they were out there from like nine to five are just like they're checking people in and being supportive and like keeping things in line um huge shout out to them as well well thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me oh yeah of course this was so much fun thanks for checking out this special episode hopefully we are near the end of the strikes but in the meantime i'm glad we get to put some humans behind the headlines Thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Set Path. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to rate it and share it with a friend, especially if you can think of someone who might benefit from the knowledge that was shared here today. You can keep up with the podcast on all social platforms at No Set Path Show or on the website at www.nosetpathshow.com. Thanks so much for being part of this community and we'll talk to you soon.